0: Thanks Thanks, guys. Good morning. If you would turn to your Bibles uh, to Jonah chapter three. Our chapter carries over from the story being told in Jonah chapter one and two. Did I lose anybody yet? No? Okay, good. Uh, In chapter one, we essentially see Jonah tell God no when God commands him to go to Nineveh and preach a message of judgment. Then in chapter 2, as you've seen, we see Jonah essentially repent while sitting inside the stomach of a great fish, inside its gastric juices and amongst the floating fish parts. Seems like a good time to repent if there ever was one for me. And Jonah acknowledges there who God is, and then he commits himself to do that which the Lord has called him to do previously. That is, he was to go to a bunch of people whom he despised, And tell them to repent, the Ninevites. If those people were to do so, they would then experience God's grace and mercy. And it's at that point of the story, Jonah is then essentially barfed out onto the shore. The Hebrew word there for barf is ko. Ko means to vomit up, to spew out, to disgorge. And it's not important at all for us to know that. I just thought that was pretty cool to throw in there, so I mentioned it. Anyway, covered on the dry shore there in Fish Puke, Jonah lays there, and and that's where this third chapter begins. And as we read today, we're going to discuss three truths that we can take away from today's message from this portion of Scripture. Those three truths are this. Number one, God is the God of second chance. Number two, God is the God of proof. And number three, God is the God of revival. First, some important context. The events of this story take place between 790 and 760 B.C., roughly 2,800 years ago. You might have to check my math. I'm a Bible teacher, not a mathematician. Uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Worth, yeah, you do a great job. We're just going to leave that to you. Anyway, uh, in the 8th century B.C., the Neo-Assyrian Empire would reach its peak of power. But in the decades of history that Jonah is in here, Assyria, where Nineveh is located, is actually in a period of decline, and they're preoccupied with political issues, with issues of internal security. Nineveh, along with Assyria, is in decline. It's in decline, much like Mark Zuckerberg's personality—excuse me, popularity. It's in decline, much like Twitter's stock market value. It's in decline, much like the Kansas City Chiefs' Super Bowl successes. Nineveh is sinking. It was a period for the Assyrians of anarchy. There were a series of rebellions of a group of Assyrian officials who fought against another opposing group of Assyrian officials and its government from the year 763 to 758 BC. That kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it, to us? Anyway, it's in this setting that this prophecy of Jonah was to be given to this important city within this vast and rapidly dividing Assyrian Empire. And a prophecy of this nature that Jonah was told to bring would therefore be taken very seriously at this time due to Assyria's political atmosphere. Fortunately for the Assyrians... They would go on to strengthen and actually solidify. They would amass a vast and strong empire that would last around another 150 years or so. But in relation to Israel and to the Jews, God's people at this time, Assyria had been a fierce enemy of Israel, just one generation prior to Jonah coming on this scene, and within another generation of this account in this book, in 732 BC, Assyria would actually conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and take them away into captivity. If you don't know that story, that's the second half of your Old Testament, you should read that uh, tonight before you go to bed, you'll be glad that you did all of it, just read it all. Anyway, due to Israel's negative history with the Assyrians, Jonah despised being told by the Lord to bring them this message of repentance. Jonah's got to be the only preacher in world history who doesn't want to see people come to the Lord as a result of his preaching. But if the Ninevites turned to the Lord, then that would mean that the people of Nineveh, whom Jonah despised, would be saved to the disliking of Jonah, this ancient Israelite racist and prophet. He really was. He really was a racist. MacArthur calls him a racist, so it must be true. Verse 1, read with me in your Bibles. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying. Here's our first point. Number one, God is the God of second chances. Our God gives second chances and, unfortunately, Big 12 referees give second chances too. Are you guys, are you guys aware of this? (laughs) It was 2009, the Big 12 championship game and the underdog, Nebraska Cornhuskers, led the game with seconds remaining on the clock.
1: Got one more play here before the field goal attempt. Better hurry up. Third down and 13, roll pocket right. Throw it out of bounds and stop the clock. Wait a minute. Did the game end? Nebraska thinks it's over. McCoy may have run the clock out. Mac thinks there's a second left. I thought there was a second left. I think Bo Pelini should settle down the Nebraska sideline. I think they can look at the clock in this situation. I thought there was a second. The previous play is on the, the review. They will look at the clock. Let's check it out. Here's the replay that they will be watching upstairs. There's the game clock, is what is important. The ball lands with one second. One second, one left. second left. One on the clock. second left on that clock right there. <laughs>
0: of course it is. So the refs they put one second back on the clock, even though, in my opinion, it went all the way down to zero. So Texas. Is given a second chance to win the game, and here is, of course, what happens.
1: Gets rid of the ball, but nonetheless, they still have the one second. The 46-yard for everything. Got it. This goes to Pasadena.
0: (laughs) Just like it was yesterday. (laughs) Good day for second chances. Bad day for us to be Husker fans. But despite this second chance not working out for us and, and for the enemy, the Texas Longhorns. I mean, they even have horns like the devil uh, or not. But, but even though the second chance didn't work out for us, I'm so glad that our God, like Big 12 referees, is a God of second chances. And I bet the Ninevites were too. Verse 1 again, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Get up, God said. Knock the fish puke off and do what I've already told you to do. Now think about the first time around when God spoke to Jonah for a second. Think about where your heart has got to be this first time to be able to say no to God. To to be able to say no, to be a vast warning for this, this city full of people, of God's coming wrath and judgment. I mean, this is a city essentially headed for hell, and you are God's chosen instrument to warn these people, yet you cold-heartedly say no. And think of the hatred you must have for these people. To not just say no to the task of, of, of going and, and being a message of repentance and remaining where you are, but to actually pack your bags, go down to the docks, pay for a ship to take you in the exact opposite direction, then the Lord is asking you to go. Uh, that is hate. And it's not that Jonah didn't know the direction that the Lord was sending him and, and requesting him to go in, but it's that he did know where the Lord wanted him to go, yet he said no. And then he said not only no, but heck no, and he got on a boat and he sailed away. That's not just defiance. That's deep Rebellion. That's insubordination. That's a revolutionary type of disobedience. Yet, mercifully, graciously, verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Of course, for Jonah to go the first time would have been better. To go... The first time would have displayed trust to the Lord. It would have displayed love to the Lord. It would have displayed dependence upon the Lord. To go the first time would to spare himself the expense of travel that was set in the wrong direction. It would be to spare himself for Jonah the conflict of being violently shaken awake and then thrown from the ship to an unforgiving sea. To go the first time would be to be spared being swallowed by this giant whale of problems even though it's probably not a whale but a giant fish of some sort. But to go at God's original command would mean for Jonah to have spared himself getting into this fishy predicament in the first place. It would mean to be spared the chastising and discipline of the Lord. Jonah could have been spared being puked out and disgorged upon the shores that he was originally told to go to. And had he gone at God's original command, he could have arrived in safety. Jonah, though, chose to go his own way, yet the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. My question is, who here has known the word of the Lord, be it even a single verse, a single command, yet failed to believe it, and therefore you failed to act upon it and obey it? You read the words, you hear the verse, you you run it through your mind, yet that temptation to flee to Tarshish or run headfirst into your sin entices you. Maybe your heart's afflictions, excuse me, your heart's affections like Jonah's are or have been set on the wrong thing. Instead of your heart being pleased in God's word and in obeying his voice, Your heart is set on worldly things. And as a result of your heart seeking after worldly things, destruction is what inevitably results. You find that turning your heart away, like I found, from the Lord in disobedience results in cost. It cost Jonah some of his own resources to go to Tarshish. You find, like him, that turning your heart from God suddenly brings you into a storm of issues you find that your circumstances caused by your disobedience thrash you about and sway you from side to side as you're trying to stay upright on the ship that you've put yourself in. Soon you feel as if you're being consumed by your issues, your problems, your your struggles. Your life circumstances seem to swallow you up. Who amongst us hasn't experienced this when we've chosen our way and not the Lord's? And where do many of these issues begin for us? Where do most of these life issues begin? When we sin. When we're selfish. When we make self-pleasing decisions. With decisions that flee the very will and desire of God in our lives. If I've just described you. If you've ever hardened your heart against the Lord's commands. If you've done what is self-pleasing and not God-honoring no know this, know that God is the God of second chance. Know that if you've blown it or are blowing it, if you can turn to the Lord, he will make your paths straight. Know that he offers the second chance to you just as he offered to Jonah here. When I was uh, 13 years old, I got hooked up with a, a church youth group through a friend for the first time. Uh, My family professed to be Christians. We went to church. We worshiped the Lord, uh, but mostly on Christmas and Easter. Um, Or if they had a good potluck going, then we'd always show up. But we we checked the cultural Christianity box anyway. Well, as a part of that youth group, I was invited to a church camp one summer, and and I went to church camp. And at that church camp, I actually, I heard the gospel, and I remember praying the, the sinner's prayer for the first time. And I've never forgotten what happened next that day during that service when I prayed that prayer. That pastor type, he came back up to the stage and and this is what he said verbatim. He said, some of you in this room will be called to be missionaries. Some of you in this room will be called to be pastors. And when he said that word pastor, it's like I got stung with that word and, and it resonated deep within me. I knew that that guy, that pastor was talking to me. I knew that in that room of 300 stinky, mostly musty, smelly middle schoolers and junior hires, no offense to you in here, okay, but but I knew (laughs) he was talking to me. I, I now realize that it was the Holy Spirit speaking subtly to my heart about the plans that he had for me, but at 13, I wasn't all that interested in being a pastor, I Entertained church for a while longer. I continued to pray and read my Bible for, for a little time. Something definitely occurred in me that day, but those pursuits eventually faded away as I began to pursue more important things to my adolescent brain. Things like girls and, and sports and popular pe- popularity and, and alcohol. Worldly things became my pursuit. And I'll spare you all the gory details today, but by the time I was 25 years old, I ended up in the very same place that Jonah did in my rebellion, that is, on dry ground, covered in the filth of my own sin, having had my sinful life pursuits essentially vomit me up. Fortunately, I remembered the Lord that day, when my life was a mess, when I stood to lose everything dear to me. When I was on the dry ground on my living room floor, saturated in my own tears, I asked the Lord to forgive me, and I asked him to use my life for his purpose. And About a year later, after seeing the Lord graciously restore many of the things that I had broken, including my own marriage, after having gained an insatiable appetite for reading his word, those those words that I heard when I was 13 years old, from that church camp came back into my consciousness for the first time in over a decade. Some of you in this room will be called to be missionaries, some of you pastors. I knew that the Lord intended me to give up my own desires and pursuits and to instead pursue his. So that day I began researching Christian colleges online, and now 10 years, 2 degrees, 3 kids, and a lot less hair later because I listened to the Lord, because God gave me the grace to arise as he did Jonah. When the Lord's word came to me a second time, uh, I now have the privilege of serving as a pastor at a church in Grand Island, doing the things that God had told me to do the first time, but giving me the grace to do the second. And I'll tell you, I wish I would have obeyed the first time when I was 13. The first time the word came. Because had I done that, I would have forewent all the waves of the storms that I got myself into. I would have never sailed that ship of wrong direction. I would have never been swallowed by my sin and then sunk to the depths. But I could have arrived on the shores of God's calling upright and walking. But instead, I had to arrive blemished and bruised and beaten up on the shores of my original God-given destination. So for Jonah, for me, God is the God of second and third and fourth and fiftieth chances. His mercies are new every morning. He is full of unfailing love. He's, He's a God of great compassion who blots out our transgressions, washes away our iniquities, and cleanses us. From sin, God is the God of second chances. I hope to be a voice in your life this morning that says there's nothing out there if you're choosing to go the other way. I've tried to sail to Tarshish. I've tried to achieve purpose and meaning without God going in the opposite direction. My my voice today to you is turn back. Turn the helm of your ship. If you're sailing away from the Lord, I've been where you're going. You're heading into a dark storm. You're plunging into deep and unforgiving waters. Let God be the God of your second chance and heed his word today. Now, not only is God the God of second chances, but our God is also the God of proof. Read verse three. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a a three day journey in extent And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Nineveh, we were told up until the late 1800s, didn't exist. The only place Nineveh existed, they said, was in the Bible. There was no archaeology. There were no writings. There were no historical records. Nothing, save the Bible, pointed to the reality of Nineveh. Well, in the late 1800s, guess what archaeologists discovered? Dinosaurs, exactly. They also discovered Nineveh, but not in the same place. Nineveh was there all along, just as God had said it was, as the Bible said it was. And what's so interesting about the discovery of, of Nineveh is that Nineveh was pound, found excuse me, under a pair of tells. A tell is a hardened debris or, or hardened debris Uh, From the accumulated refuse of generations of people who were formed and uh, this refuge would essentially pile over these settlements and all we can see on the outside is a hill. Um, In other words, more clear words, ancient Nineveh that had been covered for thousands of years was built on top of by other less ancient civilizations. I've actually got a picture. This is the tell of uh, Es Sultan, which was excavated in 1868 over the site of the ancient city of Jericho there in, in Israel. Well, Nineveh was found under a pair of these tells in the 1800s, but here's the interesting thing about those those tells, those mounds of ancient debris from pre existing settlements, were known at the time by their local names of Kunjik and Nabu Yunus. Uh, No, I'm not having a stroke, and I'm not slurring my words. In the words of Peter, I'm not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. But in Arabic, the word Nabi Yunus, the name of one of those tells that was discovered over Nineveh, actually means the prophet Jonah. Nineveh, this city that Jonah was sent to, was discovered hundreds of years later under a tell named the prophet Jonah. But that's not all. There's actually more extra biblical information that points to the story of Jonah being true. There was a, a Babylonian priest named Berossus in the Hellenistic era who wrote about a mythical creature named Oannes, who, according to Berossus, was a fishman who emerged from the sea to give divine wisdom to men. The curious thing about this creature named Oannes is actually his name. When the story of Oannes was named by Barosis, Barosis wrote in the Greek language. Oannes is just a single letter removed from the Greek name of Joannes, which just so happens to be the name of the prophet of Jonah when he's talked about in the New Testament, when it was penned in its original Greek form. And if you know your Greek etymology like I don't, I can't even say the word correctly half the time, but if you know etymology, then you know that the I in the ancient Greek language, was eventually changed to the letter J, or the I's were dropped altogether. So what I'm saying is that we have extra biblical information that collaborates with the Bible and this account of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish and then being puked out onto the shores and then making his way into Nineveh. As a believer, to me, God's word is enough. I believe the story happened because God said it happened. But for the skeptic, for the doubter, for the searcher of truth, it's good to have extra info. It's good to have sources outside of the Bible pointing to the truth. Now, here's another interesting thing about Jonah and important to understanding this story now that we know a little about Assyria and Nineveh. Some say Jonah, after being puked out of this fish, would have been bleached white. Have you heard that before? There are uh, some accounts of men actually since then who have been swallowed by whales. One guy was swallowed by a whale shark. Another guy by uh, a f- well, the whale shark. I'm going to say it, it's not a shark or it's actually it's not a whale. It's actually a fish. Um, another guy was swallowed by a, sw- a sperm whale you're going to see here in a second. But most of these guys were inside of these fish or whales for like a day or a, a day and a half or up to two days in some cases. But in every instance. When they emerged from inside of these fish or these whales, the acids of the stomachs had actually turned them bleach white. Their hair was gone, their eyebrows were gone, their eyelashes, all gone. They were essentially albino-looking dudes. I suspect Jonah looked the same way. Check this clip out.
1: Time and ask one Mr. James Bartley the man who survived inside a sperm whale's stomach for close to 36 hours straight. As the alleged story goes, in June of 1891, Bartley was part of a whaling expedition on board a ship called the Star of the East. When the crew spotted a massive sperm whale off the Falkland Islands, they rushed out in smaller longboats trying to harpoon it. Their hunting tactics were a success. However, the whale fighting back and splashing about caused the smaller boats to capsize, leaving James vulnerable in the water. Somehow, in the thrashing, he found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that was inside the whale's mouth. Impacted by the wounds from the harpoons, the whale didn't make it. So, the crew on board the Star of the East tied the whale to the boat and brought it along with them before hoisting it up. When the crew opened it up over a day later, that's when the unconscious, yet still very much alive, James Bartley showed himself, hidden in the whale's stomach. As a result of his time inside, his face and his arms had been bleached white. He'd lost all the hair on his body and from then on, he was blind. And all of this is due to the excess exposure to the whale's stomach acids. And I can hear you now. But this happened so long ago. How do we even know if it's truthful? Well, stories were published in a number of newspapers shortly after it happened. Including this one in the Buffalo Commercial in New York. The article mentioned that when the workers were taking the beast apart, they were, quote, startled to discover something doubled up in it that gave spasmodic signs of
0: of life, it says. So, again, God's the God of proof, and there's evidence of his word all over, the story of Jonah being no different. These more recent accounts of men being swallowed by giant fish, like the one you just saw in the video, and surviving, they, they essentially point us back to the truth of the Bible. But one of the most interesting things about these accounts is, again, the color of their bodies. Once they emerged alive from these fish, they they were bleached white. I and and many Bible commentators and theologians suspect that Jonah landed on shore uh, when he did so. He would have had this appearance of this white albino sort of guy with no hair. And what a sight Jonah would have been to behold. Now, why is this important to understand? Well, it's because at the time that this happened to Jonah, the Assyrians worshipped a popular deity by the name of Dagon. They recognized him as God. Many Mesopotamian cultures, including Assyria, worshipped this god of Dagon. Dagon was a god that was depicted as half man and half fish. This is one of the ways that he would be depicted. Now imagine believing that your god uh, is essentially the Little Mermaid's father, uh, Old King Triton. <laughs> and suddenly you're on the coast one day enjoying a swim, wrecking your brother's sandcastle or, or sand ziggurat, whatever they built back then. And suddenly this giant fish rolls up. He, he looks you in the eye and suddenly he barfs out a man. Your ancient idolatrous mind would think, wow, that doesn't happen every day. This must be a sign from Dagon. This must be perhaps even an avatar of Dagon or a man on a mission sent by Dagon. And so it's believed that when Jonah made his way from the coast there at Joppa, most likely, then on into Nineveh, which would have taken him about a month's journey, that he was then ushered into the city by people who had maybe even been eyewitnesses to the miraculous regurgitation of this white albino man who, in their eyes, was a representative of the god of Dagon. And if this is the case, which I believe it very well could be, it would then make sense why. The great and superior Assyrians would listen to a lowly prophet from the nation of Israel when he came with a harsh message declaring their judgment. It's amazing to think about the wisdom of our God here and how he could have constructed these events in making Jonah appear as a man of great importance to these people. See, God is a God of second chance, but he's also the God of proof. His word is proven in history, in archaeology, in science, and given enough time and enough revelation, the Bible will prove itself true in every regard. Now as we take this home and make this last point, listen to what the people of Nineveh do when Jonah, our white, careless albino hero, stands before them after his long journey. Verse 5 says, So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. There's repentance here. There's a mourning for their sin. There's a turning away from their previously sinful actions. Verse 6 Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. By laying his robe aside, the king of Nineveh was essentially symbolically declaring that God is even greater than he and that God has authority over him, even as king. And with sackcloth and ashes, he himself is saying, I am in mourning. I'm weeping over my sin. Verse 7, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Verse 10, then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it so instead of judgment coming upon the people of Nineveh because there was repentance and faith in the God of heaven God relented from his fierce anger and he instead offered the Ninevites mercy here's our final point God is the God of revival A spiritual awakening in Nineveh occurred that day. The Lord's will was done. People's lives were changed. Restoration occurred. But this great revival that we see here in this city, that would have taken a three days walk to to get across in, first started because one man, Jonah, listened to the Lord when the Lord said, arise. Arise, Jonah, and go to Nineveh. But we might question and we say, but, but wait, Lord. Even after he stumbled, even after he flubbed, even after he gaffed, even after he hardened his heart toward you and went in the exact opposite direction, yes, the Lord would say, arise. And when the word of the Lord came to Jonah that second time, Jonah got up and he went. But now, the fact is, Jonah is unlike he was before. Jonah wasn't only different now in appearance, being a bald white guy with a serious odor of fish emitting off of him, but now he was different in heart. You know, the Ninevites aren't the only ones who had experienced revival in this book. But for them to experience revival, Jonah had to first be revived himself. Back in chapter 2, we saw Jonah's heart change. He, he prayed to the Lord. He repented unto the Lord. He had his own personal revival. He did previously in his heart the things we now see the Ninevites doing in theirs. And once Jonah's heart was purified, and once his body even, you could say, symbolically was purified, once it was bleached and made white, then he diligently obeyed the Lord And he followed God's original request to preach a message of repentance to the Ninevites. And the amazing thing is the Ninevites, listened when this prophet purified in heart, who even appeared brand new on the outside, if you will, came to them with this message. Jonah's message resonated as true to them. They dealt with it very seriously. They obeyed his words and heeded his warnings. And perhaps the greatest revival in history broke out. And their judgment was spared. Listen, there was a time when our hearts were set against the Lord. There was a time when we would have rather done anything such as jump on a ship for Tarshish than follow God. But thank goodness the Lord got our attention. Thank goodness he sent into our lives a storm of correction. A storm that would turn us from our sin and turn us unto him. And thank goodness he sent someone, a representative, an ambassador of the Lord, into your life to be a witness of his mercy and his grace. That mighty fish was God's humble message of mercy to Jonah. The humbled man of Jonah was God's mighty message of grace to the Ninevites. And whether the gospel came into our lives mightily or humbly, our hearts were made right with God when we believed. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Thank goodness, just as Jonah was made white Just as he was spewed forth from this great fish with a new heart, we too were made new. We too were born again. Our scarlet sin was made white as snow and we were given a new heart. Listen, it was Jonah's new heart and his purified self that bore effective witness to the Ninevites. It was the word that Jonah spoke forth That word being the message of the Lord that the Ninevites heard and then believed. Upon their belief, they then repented and were saved. Revival resulted because one obstinate and rebellious sinner was purified by God. Because the prophet Jonah bowed his will and his heart to the Lord, even though he didn't necessarily like where the Lord was leading him, because purification and newness came to his heart first, purification and newness was then able to come to the heart of others, to the hearts of the Ninevites later. You too, if you've believed on the Lord, you've been purified and you've been washed, And you, like Jonah, are called to be preachers of God's word. You are to spark revival by speaking God's truth with your mouths. Matthew 28, therefore, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations. You could be the cause of revival all around you because you chose to believe and obey the Lord's words from the Great Commission. You could see the blessings of heaven become tangible because you love those in your sphere of influence enough to share with them the life-saving news that Jesus Christ saves sinners like us who turn to him in repentance and in faith. Students, I pray that you will choose right now or, or that you will reconfirm in this moment that your life, will be a life lived for the Lord and, and for his purposes. I pray that you will choose this day to forego Tarshish altogether. And I pray that instead you will choose to be a witness to those around you. That your God is a God, you'll tell those people. He's a God of second chances. He's a God of proof. And I pray that you will tell him that your God is a God of revival. That he can come into any situation, any issue, any struggle, any city, and make things new. And I believe that with all my heart, that all of us are called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ in whatever God calls us to do. I also believe that some in this very room will be called to be missionaries, some of you will be called to be pastors, whatever or wherever. The Lord is leading you. Will you choose this day to lay aside your life's pursuits and instead submit to the, to the Lord's good and perfect will for your life? As a fellow believer, as a brother in Christ, I can tell you, life is much better when you arrive on the shore of your destination, not covered in fish puke. Amen? Amen. Amen.